by those who are closest to Jesus. But the other theme that is equally important, if not more so, is seen in the act of the woman in the first part of the chapter. And that is that she honors Jesus as the king as the, and anoints him as the one who has come from God. And so as we look through the chapter at these two themes, the, the question of honoring him and the question of faithfulness to him, let's begin by looking at the opposition of the religious leaders in verse 1. There is, I think, a great deal of irony in the way that Mark highlights this for us. It's the feast of the Passover, a time of setting aside sin, setting aside uh, things which were considered to be unclean, of remembering God and his relationship with his people. And in the context of that observance, the Pharisees said, let's try to kill Jesus. They wanted to seize him by stealth and to kill him, but they didn't want to do it during the Passover, not because it was wrong, not because it would be murder, not because it's completely opposed to the entire point of the Passover, but because, verse 2, there might be a riot of the people. We see a similar attitude in the Gospels in which they want his body taken down off the cross and they don't want to touch it because they don't want to be unclean, because they want to be able to observe the Passover. It's kind of like saying, well, I just ran somebody over with my car. I don't want to be late to church, though. There's just the... the the arrogance and the blindness and the hatred that they had for Jesus is astonishing that we see in these two verses. Jesus goes now then to Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, at the home of Simon the leper. There's several accounts uh, in each of the Gospels that parallel this one. It seems that there are multiple occasions on which um, this event takes place with several different women, one anointing his feet, one anointing his head. Uh, but the emphasis here is on the recognition that this woman is anointing him like the kings of old were anointed, in a costly way, in a sacrificial way. But before we get to that, at the end of verse 3, I want you to notice what it says at the beginning. While he was at the home of Simon the leper, and say, okay, great, Simon the leper, no big deal. Lepers were the outcasts of society. They weren't allowed to live in their homes. They had to go and live outside the city with the other lepers, exiled from their people, unable to do normal social gatherings like have a feast and have friends over and observe the Passover. So if he is at the home of this leper during the time of Passover... For any kind of a social gathering, that can only mean one thing. He's healed Simon of his leprosy. So he's at the home of one who had been an outcast. And now comes a woman who potentially, as we see in the other accounts, is herself an outcast. 
one of the women in one of the other gospel accounts is described as being a sinner. Perhaps the one uh, described as being the woman caught in adultery in another place, but we don't know that for sure. But my point is to say, here are two outcasts. One, receiving Jesus into his home after he's been healed. Another, sacrificially pouring out of what she has, a year's worth of wages in a single act of sacrificial devotion, honoring Jesus as the anointed one of God at the same time that the religious leaders are plotting how to kill him in such a way that they can observe the feast with clean hands, though not a clean heart. But Mark's veiled condemnation of the people around Jesus in this moment extends also to those who are watching the sacrificial act of the woman. Why did she waste it? The money could have been given to the poor. In another of the accounts, it's Judas Iscariot is the one who makes this remark. And as we look at this and we consider it, the very people gathered here who are focused on the poor are probably the same people who are contributing to them being poor in the first place. Why do I say that? Because in the other accounts that give us different details about these incidents uh, in the life of Jesus, we see Judas Iscariot being the one saying, give the money to the poor. What was he doing? He was stealing from the rest of the disciples the money that was given in his care. What do we see even in the story of Mark at the end of chapter 12? The Pharisees putting in large sums of money. Here's the widow who has basically nothing. She is contributing sacrificially. They're giving the bare minimum. The reason that these people are poor in Jerusalem is because the religious leaders have profited off their position and have become wealthy and ignored the needs of their fellow Israelites. My point in saying all this is to say, those who are standing there saying, oh, this money should have been given to the poor, are not saying it because they cared about the poor. They're saying it because in their mind, calculations are running. How could this have gone a different way? How could potentially I have gotten a little piece of it? Jesus points out that she has anointed him, that the poor will always be with you. Now, quick aside, sometimes people have said the poor will always be with you means poverty is a problem that can't be solved, so why bother? That's not the point of this. Jesus' point is to say his time on earth had a very specific time limit. As long as the world goes on and sin exists in the world, there are going to be people who are poor. That's not a justification to avoid ministering to them, according to this passage. That's just an observation that this is going to be a perpetual problem as long as there is sin in the world. Jesus says you can keep doing good to the poor, if that's really your goal. But you don't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. What did Jesus just get done saying? Here's all these things of judgment that are going to happen. What did he just get done saying? He said, I am going to be killed at the beginning of chapter 12. What did he just get done saying in chapter 10? We're going to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered and he will be condemned. He will be handed over. He'll be put to death. 
here's a woman who by faith believed my words that I am going to be buried, anointed me before the burial in an act of honor and sacrifice. He says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. The contrast between this woman's sacrificial devotion and the Pharisees who say, well, let's murder him, but not during the Passover. Between this woman and the onlookers who say, oh, but you should have given to the poor. It's again ironic, verse 10. Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this, and they promised to give him money, and they began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. One professing disciple honors Jesus sacrificially. Professing followers of God seek to kill him. One of his own disciples plans how to betray him. In this instance, here is someone who is honoring Jesus as he deserves to be honored. Not one of those who are themselves honored, but one who is not honored and yet shows Jesus the proper honor. What then are we to make of this? Well, we are to honor Jesus as she did. It's easy for us to ask questions like, what will this cost me when it comes to doing things that we think God will be honored by? Um, I mean, a more profound example, perhaps, is the person who says, I think God wants me to go be a missionary somewhere. What do, we, what do we start to do? We start making the calculations of how much will it cost and how will this be paid for and will I have to eat foods that I hate and all of these sorts of things, right? But in a very minute or, or minor way, do we honor God by honoring those he honors? What I mean by that is, Jesus says in another place, the things that you have done to the least of these, you have done to me. You and I might say, I don't know if God wants me to be a missionary. Okay. Pray about that. Consider that. What does God want you to do with your life? But even if not everybody goes off like Paul and preaches the gospel in unknown places, all of us have opportunity to honor Jesus in the way that we respond to the people around, around us. And usually in those scenarios, we have the same kinds of questions. Who's going to pay for this? What's in it for me? Etc., etc. And those are the attitudes that we see of the onlookers, right? Oh, this shouldn't have been done this way. How could I have benefited from this? When we see an opportunity to honor God by doing things which are pleasing to him, we should be careful not to crush that impulse in a sort of rational, uh, calculating way that lacks faith. And take it over to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul talks to the Corinthians and says, hey, you guys promised you were going to give to this offering to help the poor in Jerusalem. And then you took a step back and you said, maybe we don't actually want to do that. Why? Well, Paul addresses some of those issues. You might think, if I do this, there's less for me, my needs won't be met, etc., etc. But hey, look at the Macedonians over there. 
They already have nothing, but they're sacrificing out of their nothing, and God keeps providing for their needs. Paul says the goal is not that we take, you know, if this person has $100 and that person has 20 and that person has none, the goal is not to take it away from the guy that has a lot and give it to everybody else so everybody has the same amount of money, but the goal is to have the attitude and say, am I willing to give sacrificially and serve and do what pleases God, or is everything in my mind a calculation about what does it cost me? Is it the optimal, most ideal way for this to happen? Because there's a kind of wisdom that says, if I have expenses, then I need to keep what I have to meet my expenses, and I should never minister to those around me. But this woman is clearly not making that sort of calculation. She's saying, I have a one-time opportunity to honor Jesus, and I don't care about the fact that it was a year's worth of perfume in this little box or jar that I broke to honor him. And that was a unique scenario, right? You and I don't have Jesus in front of us. We don't have the opportunity to honor him before his burial. And yet, there is a question of honoring Jesus versus dishonoring him. There is a question of sacrifice versus being calculating and holding on to all that we have. The reality is, Anything that you and I have, we might not have tomorrow. The moments that you and I have to honor Jesus with what we do with our money and our time and our words and our whatever resources God has given to us, sometimes certain moments only come once. I don't mean the kind of moment only comes once. Let's give you an illustration. One time I was over... Uh, near the school where the kids go, Bethany, and I went and I got breakfast at the Tim Hortons um, there on Big Beaver, and there was a girl standing out in front of the Tim Hortons that just looked like she was having a really difficult day, and I had a sense that, you know what, I should probably go say, hey, is there anything I can pray, pray for you about? But here's the questions that go through your mind. What will people think if they see me talking to her? Or is she going to take it the wrong way, like I'm coming on to her or something? Or, you know, but maybe I've got to get to this thing in 20 minutes and it might be a little bit of a time crunch or, you know, whatever, right? So I thought about it, circled the block, got the thing at Tim Hortons, came back out, she was gone. That's what I mean by certain moments only happening once. Maybe she's been there again and I haven't seen her, but my point is, just like this woman saw an opportunity to do something that honored God in an act of sacrifice, you and I sometimes will have similar moments, and I wonder how many times we don't take them because we've got all these questions running through our minds. The same questions the onlookers had, if not the direct opposition of the religious leaders. We also see a contrast, not just in the question of honoring versus dishonoring, the religious leaders, the onlookers, and Judas Iscariot, but the question of faithfulness, of pursuing a relationship with God and not giving that up when opposition comes and all of those sorts of things. And again, we see a contrast between this woman and the disciples because she could have said, hey, if I identify with Jesus in this moment, 
it's potentially going to be hard with me because I forget if it's in Mark or one of the other Gospels, but the Pharisees were putting people out of the synagogue if they were associated with Jesus. You do a visible public act of sacrifice that everybody notices. You're putting yourself out where people are going to potentially notice what you're doing and that's going to be dangerous or harmful for you in some way. And yet she was willing to do it. <coughs> in contrast, we see the examples of the disciples, Judas, the greatest betrayal, but even Peter and the rest who run away from Jesus in this moment. Let's get into that in the second part of the chapter. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, it's easy for us to fault the disciples and say, hey, Jesus said he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. The Passover is a feast in which you observe a lamb that takes away sin. And Jesus said he's going to be delivered over. And you should have put the pieces together and said, Jesus is the Passover lamb who's going to be sacrificed this week. And you should have been doing something other than, hey, here's the thing we always do. Where are we going to do it at? But to be fair, I don't know that we would have done better than them. And yet, <coughs> Mark wants to highlight for us, here's a time when leaven is set aside and bread is eaten. Here's a time when a lamb is sacrificed to deal with sin. There's clear symbolism that should have been noticed. He sends them in, and just like he said not long before, go find the colt of the donkey and bring it, and people will say, are you sure you want to do that? They'll say, yes, the Lord has need of it. And so you take it and you bring it back. In the same way, they said, where's my guest room? And it's provided. And verse 16 says, they found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. When it says they found it just as he had told them, I read this and I wonder, did they have a little bit of surprise? Even still, even at this point, they were surprised when he calmed the sea after he had already done several miracles. They seemed to be surprised, or um, at least I'm sure they would have been, when they go and they find the donkey. Were they surprised when the room was exactly the way that he said it would be? And yet, throughout the rest of this section, there is an emphasis on the Word of God, the Scripture being fulfilled. And if Jesus is the Word of God, and he's speaking the Word of God, they should have been surprised when what he said came to pass. They've been with him three, three and a half years. This should no longer be a surprise to them. Maybe it wasn't, but given their response about a number of other things, I wonder if it was. And then verses 17 through 21, he comes with the 12, and they're observing the Passover. Jesus says, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. For us, I think this maybe isn't as significant but I think there's some truth to the reality that in a lot of cultures, to sit down and to eat with someone is to extend some measure of hospitality and an expression of peace and all of those sorts of things. So to the extent that someone who's sitting there right next to you at the table sharing a meal with you is the one who's going to betray you and see you killed, that highlights the nature of the betrayal. Jesus says specifically, not only one of the twelve, but the one who dips with me in the bowl. It's not just you're at the same meal, but you're dipping out of the same bowl, sharing the same food, and yet he's going to go right out of there and betray you for money. 
because of the greed in his heart. You have to wonder, and the Bible doesn't really explain all of this, what was going through Judas Iscariot's mind in this moment? Because in one of the other Gospels, it almost seems like Jesus turns and looks at him, and there's this split second where he could have said no, and yet he still goes and does it anyway. How could you be with Jesus for three, three and a half years, see all the things that he had done, and while all that's going on, you're stealing from the other disciples who don't have a lot of money to begin with, and you're like, but I need more money, and so you go and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which was worth something, but not wasn't going to last you forever. What was going through his mind and his heart to say, satisfying my greed, even for a brief moment, is worth more than this opportunity I've had to walk with the Messiah for these last three years. The other Gospels indicate that at this moment, he goes out. This wording of, it would be good for that man if he had not been born, I think echoes David's and Job's and other uh, Old Testament authors in, uh, in their words when they say, Something along the lines of, Job says, if all this affliction has come upon me, it would have been better that I had not been born. David says, unless you spare me, Lord, I, I wish that I had not been born, because better for that than for me to go through all these things and not see your deliverance at the end of it. I think Jesus is not saying um, someone should have killed Judas and then this wouldn't have happened. I don't think he's saying, I wish him dead. I think he's saying, for him to come to this moment... And yet betray me, knowing all he knows and seeing all he's seen. It would have been better for the condemnation that he incurs if he had never gone through all of that than for him to go through all of that and still commit this act of treachery against me. We now, they now observe what we know and observe as the Lord's Supper. And again, we say, why didn't the disciples pick up on the symbolism of what he's doing here? He's observing the normal aspects of the Passover. Here's the wine. Jesus says, this is my blood. Here's the bread. Jesus says, this is my body. Now, there's a lot of professing Christian groups that don't teach what the Bible says. and They try to make this out to be a magic ritual in which a kind of idolatry happens and uh, the excesses of it were what Martin Luther condemned and, and the priests were essentially saying, up, let's send them back to heaven again after they supposedly sacrificed Jesus in the symbolic ritual that they perform at the Mass. Jesus is not saying, this is my body and this is my blood in some sort of mystical way. It looks like wine and it tastes like wine, but it's actually blood. It looks like bread and it tastes like bread, but it's actually flesh. That's not the point of what he's saying. He's saying, look, God sent me to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. God has sent me to be the Passover Lamb who takes the God's wrath in your place. This was pointing to me. And as you remember it, you look back to what I have done. My body actually broken, not as a piece of bread, because you can always get another loaf of bread, not as just wine, because you could always get more wine, but as a one-time act by the perfect Son of God and Son of Man to deal with the sins of the world. That's what he's illustrating for them. 
truly, he said, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When is that going to take place? Revelation gives us a glimpse of that, that there will again be a feast in which all of God's people are gathered with him, and he will share wine and bread with them as he did with the disciples before he went back. They sing a hymn and go out to the Mount of Olives. Quick aside, the hymn is probably not one that you find in the Majesty Hymnal. It would have been most likely one of the Psalms. It was common for them to sing one of the Psalms of Ascent, of going up to Jerusalem. Uh, That is commonly what was sung, Uh, but we don't know exactly which one they sang. They go out to the Mount of Olives. Jesus warns them, you're going to all fall away. And he quotes from the Old Testament, I'll strike down the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered. And he's applying something that I think God was talking about, an experience in the life of the people of Israel in judgment for their, um, in judgment for their sin. God condemns their rulers, and Jesus is taking that and applying to himself, not because he was a sinful ruler, but the principle of when the leader is struck down, then all those who are following him tend to run away. And then he reminds them, after I've been raised, I'll go ahead of you to Galilee. Again, I'm going to die, I'm going to be buried, but I'm going to be raised. Instead of focusing on what he just said, Peter says, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. He doesn't say, what about the resurrection? He doesn't say, what about the crucifixion? Peter says, look at me. Those guys I don't know about. They may not stick with you, but me, I got this. Jesus says, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they're all saying the same thing, because who wants to be outdone by Peter? The faithfulness that Jesus demonstrated to his disciples is not demonstrated back by the disciples to Jesus. Why do I say this? Jesus says, we're going to go pray at the place named Gethsemane. He takes Peter, James, and John, and he begins to be very distressed and troubled. He says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. There's a couple of interesting questions about what he's saying here. Verse 37 says he found them sleeping. How'd they know what he prayed if they were sleeping the whole time? It seems like maybe they listened at the very beginning, but then not later. We don't know that for sure. Another thing that I think is striking to us is If you see someone that you deeply care about struggling with something, what I mean by that is if you look at your husband or wife, one of your kids, a close friend, someone that you know, and have some idea of how they respond to different situations, you can tell when they're struggling with something. You can see it in their face, you can see it in their body language, you can hear it in their words, their tone of voice, all those sorts of things. If in that moment you're like, yeah, I can see something's going on. I don't really care about that. There's a pretty big disconnect between, oh yeah, I, we belong together as friends, as husband and wife, as parent and child. 
but I'm not going to be concerned that something's bothering you. And yet, that seems to be the attitude of the disciples. Jesus is very distressed and troubled. He says, I'm deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He goes and prays. They hear seemingly the first part of the prayer. And they're asleep. You say, well, I wouldn't do that. Well, be careful. Because Peter just said, I'm willing to die, and he couldn't even stay awake to hear Jesus' prayer in his moment of agony. How do we approach God? Do we approach God in a way that says, I'm really and truly devoted to God? Or do we approach God in a way that says, I'm not really that serious about it. I don't know what your thing is. Well, to clarify, I don't know what everyone's last thing is that they're interested in. I have a good idea about what some of you are interested in. Let's pick one that I don't think has anything to do with any of us. Let's say that your thing is, I don't know, surfing. Maybe some of you are really surfers, and I just don't know it because there's not much opportunity for it here. You're like, yeah, I'm going to know all about surfing, and I'm going to um, learn all the ins and outs of this particular beach and when the waves come in and out and all those sorts of things. But when it comes to being really devoted to God, yeah, that's not just really not a priority for me. I don't mean do you come to church every week because that's not at all what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying in a moment of great agony when I'm about to be betrayed when I'm about to die when I'm about to be beaten and crucified and put to death all these sorts of things this is a moment when of all moments you should pay attention and the disciples fell asleep. I wonder how much we have that attitude at particular moments throughout the week. You know what? I should pray. I should meditate on God's word. I should grow in my relationship with God. But you know what? There's really not time in my day. I got a lot of important things to do. If you can't find five minutes for God with the people around you and alone in 24 hours in a day, 168 hours in a week, we're not better than the disciples. And I don't, ask, I don't say this like, oh, look at me. I'm perfect at this. You're all terrible. It is really easy to go through long stretches of the day and not walk with God in prayer and in meditating on what he said. Because there's a lot of fascinating things in the world to consume our attention. And there's a lot of evil things in the world to entrap us. And between those two things, our walk with God tends to get squeezed out. And the best we could say is that maybe we're immature and overestimating our own ability like the disciples and specifically Peter were here. And the worst thing we could say is, 
Yeah, we say we walk with God, but we really don't. Because if we can go our whole week long and have very little or no thought of God, and it doesn't bother us at all, and our lives are consumed with the things of this world, then what do we actually worship? What do we actually care about? What do we actually love? You love and you worship what you spend your time and money with and on. And a lot of times it's not God. And again, I don't want you to hear me saying, give money to the church and then God will be happy with me. There are passages that say support God's work. That's not what I'm going after here. What I'm saying is, if we have time and money for anything and everything, but not for God, we don't really love God. That doesn't automatically mean you're not a follower of God. Sometimes you can be really immature like the disciples were here, but it does mean there's a lot of work that God has to keep doing in us. What work does God do? We'll get to that in a moment, I suppose, in Peter's life to get him ready for the work that he had for him to do. We'll, we'll talk about that at the end of the chapter. Jesus says in verse 38, Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away and prayed, saying the same words. He came back and found them sleeping. Their eyes were very heavy. They did not know what to answer him. He came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hand of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. All throughout the gospel, there's this sense, The time has not come. The time has not come. Now the moment has come, and they're not ready. Immediately while he's still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now he was betraying him and given a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away under guard. After coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. Again, fascinating irony. Teacher, honored one, my master. I've come to betray you to the people who hate you and want to kill you for a little bit of money that I'm not even going to get to enjoy as we see later in the other Gospels. They laid hands on him and seized him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Jesus said, If you come with swords and clubs to arrest me as a robber, every day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But this took place to fulfill the scriptures. Again, there's this fascinating intersection throughout this passage of to fulfill the scriptures versus, and, and God's will being accomplished versus, if it were possible, let this be taken from me. Was God's word accomplished? Jesus says, you will all fall away. Verse 27, verse 50, they all left him and fled. A young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Jesus would experience shame in his death. Jesus would be buried, wrapped like this man was in the sheet. There's, again, symbolism of his death and all of these things that are going to take place. But in the, in the same way that Jesus was going to go through it, all those who professed to be his disciples ran away and abandoned him. 
So they lead Jesus to the high priest, and the chief priests and elders gathered together. Peter followed at a distance into the courtyard, and he sat at the fire. The chief priests were trying to find testimony. They didn't find any. Many gave false testimony, but their testimony was not consistent. Some said, We heard him say, I'll destroy this temple with the hands made with hands, and in three days I'll build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus. Do you not answer? What is it these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. The high priest was questioning him and saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need have we of witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? They all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Jesus stands before these who are his accusers, and he does not answer their accusations at first to fulfill the words of Isaiah 53, like a sheep before shearers is dumb and one led to the slaughter, did not open his mouth. And yet, when pressed and asked, is this who you are? He said, yes. And they said, you're worthy of death. Because in their blindness, they only saw one possibility. He was a man blaspheming God and not the other reality that he was God made man come to save them from their sins. Peter stands in the courtyard and one of the servant girls come, came, saw Peter. You were with Jesus the Nazarene. He denied it. I neither know nor understand what you're talking about. He went out onto the porch. The servant girl saw him and began once more to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders were again saying to Peter, Surely you're one of them. You're a Galilean. But he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man you are talking about. Immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had made the remark, Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he began to weep. What should Peter have been doing when he was sleeping? should have been praying to get ready for this moment in which his commitment to Jesus was going to be tested. But he wasn't. He didn't pray. He didn't get ready. So he wasn't ready for it. And yet, in that, the word of God was fulfilled. Should Judas have betrayed Jesus? No. And yet, in that, the word of God was fulfilled. God gave his word, keeps his word, fulfills his word, even in the sinful acts and disobedience and failures of all the people around Jesus. That was not an excuse for their unfaithfulness, but it served to highlight the contrast between the faithfulness of God and the unfaithfulness of all these, including the very ones that claimed to be his and that he had called out to follow him. If these things that happened before were recorded so that we would learn from them, what are we supposed to learn from these examples? God keeps his word. You can trust it. You and I tend not to. We should be aware of that and wary of standing in pride saying, this is what I will do, when a lot of times it's not. If we can't keep watching prayer with God for a brief period of time, like the disciples did, we're not going to be ready to die with Jesus, and we're not even going to be ready to stick with him in his moment of difficulty. And that's exactly what happened with Peter and the rest of the disciples. So by way of application from the second part of the chapter, again, a contrast between the woman who is willing to associate with Jesus sacrificially regardless of what anybody thought, the words that Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, whoever is ashamed of me in this generation... 
The Son of Man will be ashamed of him. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever wants to come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. What connection does that have with what happened in this chapter? Judas Iscariot was willing to mortgage his soul by betraying Jesus to gain a small piece of all that this world has to offer. And in it he found condemnation and fell away. This woman took something far more valuable and sacrificed it for Jesus because she was willing to follow after him as a true disciple. And Jesus' own disciples that he called said they were ready, but they weren't ready. So what about us? If we're supposed to follow Jesus by faithfully honoring him, here's what needs to be happening. You and I need to be honoring Jesus in the things that we say and do on a daily basis because we're not going to be able to be faithful if we're not in the habit of honoring him by the way that we live. You say, I, if somebody came and, and put a gun to my head and said, are you a follower of Jesus? I would say, absolutely. I'd be willing to die for you, Jesus. One thing to say that here while you're sitting in a pew and you're around people that are friends and none of us are a threat to you, it's a completely other thing to be in that moment but not behind it have a life of actually denying ourselves and following Jesus. What does denying ourselves look like? Sometimes it looks like saying, you know what, I'm really tired but here's this thing that needs to happen that's going to minister to somebody else. Sometimes it looks like I don't know how I'm going to do this, that, and the other thing, but I have an opportunity to minister to this person who really has need, so I'm going to do that anyway. Sometimes it looks like I'm going to talk to my neighbor, the person I met at the gas station, someone at the grocery store, a family member about Jesus, and I don't know exactly what I'm going to say, and it's probably not going to be an easy conversation, but I need to do that anyway. If none of those things are happening, if there's no sacrifice or very little sacrifice in our lives, and if there's no faithfulness to the things God's called us to do, how are we going to be ready for those really big moments where we our faith is tested and our resolve is tested and our commitment is tested? We're not. But here's the encouragement from this passage. Peter wasn't ready here. But in John 21, Jesus confronts him and says, Hey, here's what I've called you to do. You're going to do it? And in Acts chapter 2, he stands up, and then he's ready to die by the middle of the book of Acts, and then he does die as a martyr according to church history. How did he get from, I will never betray you, and runs away, to he actually is martyred and doesn't betray the faith? God keeps working in his life. So if you and I say, hey, you know what, there's someone I should have witnessed to this week. Here's how much I should have done in spending time getting to know Jesus, spending time in prayer, or meditating on his word, reading the Bible, talking about other people, with other people about the Bible, and I did none of that. We have two responses. One is to say, I'm going to throw in the towel, never try again, because it's just not happening, just how I am, I'm a failure, whatever. That's pride. Pride says, I can't believe that I would fail to be the amazing person I thought I was. That's pride. Jesus wants you to be humble. I should have expected that I would do this because that's been my pattern of life for most of my life, but by His grace, it's going to slowly inch its way away from that to being faithful to Him. So the things that you didn't do last week 
Set those aside. But the things that you ought to do this week, pick those up and say, by God's grace, I'm going to do them. I'm going to do them because they honor God in this moment. I'm going to do them because they prepare me to serve God more faithfully down the road. But even the small steps are worth doing and are not insignificant in the process that God's unfolding in our lives. Follow Jesus by faithfully honoring him. Just because we're not like the Pharisees trying to undermine Jesus' work and and go after Christians and persecute them today, there's a lot of steps between trying to kill Jesus and actually faithfully following him, right? There's the Pharisees, there's the bystanders who maybe should have known better, maybe not. There's the disciples who really should have known better. Whatever category in this chapter you could potentially see yourself in, there are these two themes of honoring Jesus as he is meant to be honored, or to put it another way, love God with all of who you are. To put it another way, how will people know that you belong to Jesus as one of his disciples? Because you have love one for another. To put it another way, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The Bible says the same thing in a lot of different ways. But it's that same core truth. You said that you're following after God. Live up to that commitment. You said that you belong to God. So show love to the people around you. The way that we get to the point of doing that consistently in the really hard moments is by practicing it in the everyday moments throughout our lives. Follow Jesus by faithfully honoring him. His disciples didn't, the Pharisees didn't, the onlookers didn't. This woman, this outcast potentially did. And Jesus said her example is held up for us everywhere the gospel is preached. Follow Jesus by faithfully honoring him. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this passage, I think it's easy for us to uh, skim over a lot of the details, to feel that it doesn't have a whole lot to do with us, because we're not the disciples, it was a one-time thing. Certainly we are not the disciples in a way that you specifically call us to be first-hand eyewitnesses of the resurrection and the very unique moment in history in which you called them to serve. And certainly to the extent that we pattern our lives after yours, we can't actually be crucified and actually atone for sin and all of those sorts of things. But the example of denying yourself and coming to serve many and being faithful to the task God had set before you and all those sorts of things, those, Lord, are things that you do call us to live up to. And it's easy for us to be proud and say, of course, we can do that. And it's in our own strength, and we will accomplish it because we're really disciplined or really intelligent or whatever. We pile up the reasons why we think that we can accomplish these things. And when we have that sort of pride, we are going to fail utterly, just like the disciples did here. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us in this moment as we consider these truths not to make bold claims of here are the profound things that I will accomplish for God the rest of today, tomorrow, this week, next year, when I die. 
but rather to say, Lord, help me to take the next step to faithfully follow you and honor you as you deserve to be honored. It's putting down the remote and the phone and picking up a Bible. It's not talking about a movie, but about what God has done in our lives. It's saying, hey, you know what? I should be spending time in prayer and be more devoted to that than snacks and hobbies and activities and things, other things that often capture my attention when I'm home from work. Lord, if we actually belong to you, help us to live like we do. And if we don't, open our eyes to see that we need to start walking after you and trusting you. And if we've been faithfully walking after you, then Lord, I pray for those who have been doing so for a long time that they would not grow weary in well-doing, not give up in the final moments, but keep pressing on until the moment that you say, well done, good and faithful servant. Help us to faithfully honor Jesus because there's a day coming when he's going to be honored. Willingly or unwillingly, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To your glory, Father, through the work that you have accomplished, Holy Spirit, Help us to actually live up to the name of Christian Jesus. Amen.